Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schritter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. This episode is a continuation of the hospitality series on Heads Talk. Um, my guest today is an outstanding academic and has written many papers on the issue of data protection and GDPR. The hot topic of today is the vaccination passport or some describe as the COVID-19 health pass or the COVID status certificates. And my guests will provide valuable data in this area, data on the political issues, social issues and the science itself. Here at Headstalk, we love to have uh, academics on the show as they provide great insights and very fascinating discussions. Hope you all enjoy and get some takeaways from this conversation. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. My name is Dorota Ratajska, a business and life coach, a trainer and a recruiter. I have a great pleasure to support this inspiring episode of Headstock. If you or your company are in need of coaching, career consulting or recruitment services, please contact me via www.drevolve.ch or find Dorota Ratajska on LinkedIn. Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Kiara Rustici is the immediate past chair of the BCS Law Specialist Group and a GDPR subject matter expert. Kiara has, for over a decade, been an EU privacy, GDPR, and data regulation analyst. This she practiced throughout Europe and North America. A member of the editorial board for the Journal of Data Protection and Privacy, she has written many papers on the impact of GDPR on various sectors to include pharmaceuticals and the insurance industry. A regular contributor to Forbes on data regulation and data economy, we look forward to Kiara's contribution to the discussion today. Kiara has held a number of editorial and leadership roles, and she has been a tutor at the University of Edinburgh Law School. At the University of Milan, Chiara's postgraduate research was in philosophy of law and legal reasoning. To add to this, and according to Chiara, she holds the unenviable distinction of having authored the most pirated privacy book on the internet. We may touch upon this in the course of the discussion, but in the meantime, I'd like to welcome Chiara to Headstalk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Elaine. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Okay, um, the vaccine passport is a big and hot topic generally, and in the hospitality industry, from travel to requiring it to, in order to gain entry into an eating establishment, for example, what are some of the issues with this, and what's happening in the background that's driving the concerns we hear today? Um, as the rollout of the vaccines are taking place across the globe, this has increased the conversation around vaccine passport. In particular, how does this ensure safety and entry into different countries? Let's first look at its status. Firstly, where are we with the concept of a vaccine passport? How mature is this idea? And is it ready and in use anywhere globally? Ha, very good question, Elaine. Um, let me take you a step back. It wasn't always called a vaccine passport and it isn't currently called a vaccine passport. I'll, I'll just uh, say that it's an idea that has evolved. Uh, I think the first mention 
was from an immunity passport. That was a very unfortunate expression that unfortunately stuck. That was very early on in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, uncautious politicians started uh, mentioning this when it became clear then that, that none of the vaccines were actually 100% um, guaranteeing uh, immunity, that we still don't know how immunity to this virus works, then we started talking about vaccination passports. And that would have been a clear-cut case of, of the part of a population that was vaccinated uh, to be, to be you know, distinguished from the part of the population that hadn't. But now we don't even talk about vaccine passports anymore. We talk about COVID-19 status certificates. Mm. And both the European Union and the United Kingdom, for example, have decided that any COVID certificate would comprise three parts, three possibilities, either you know, vaccination status or proof of recent recovery from COVID, uh, from the illness, or, and therefore presumably having developed in, um, sort of natural immunity or a recent negative test. So we now talk of these tripartite, you know, mm -hmm. uh, three-part certificate. So I think I, I'd like to call, to call it COVID passport, if at all. Um, but yes, this is a, a concept that has evolved and you asked, is it ready? And is it in use anywhere globally? Mm -hmm. um, the idea it's, almost mature, the implementation isn't. That's a short answer. Um, the longer answer is that we're now starting to agree on what it can and cannot do. And we've started agreeing on what purposes it should be used for. So the, the, the concept has evolved to give us a little bit of clarity on whether we want these certificates or passports to uh, have a medical or a non-medical purpose. That's the first big distinction. You know, do you only need to know if you've had only one jab out of two, or do you want to know more? Does, um, you know, does an other venue need to know what your COVID status is? So medical versus non-medical purposes. Mm -hmm. Then we're starting to have a distinction between a private sector use and a public sector use. I mean, one thing is making, I don't know, uh, a discotheque <laughs> having a prerequisite for a passport. And mm -hmm. quite another is saying before you get onto the tube, you know, that's a public transport system. So that's a very different use case. What are the, what are the notions there? And then there's a clear cut distinction between um, COVID-19 certificate as a prerequisite for domestic sort of movement and domestic restrictions of um, sort of lifting of restrictions mm -hmm. uh, within one country and be that access to private or public venues, public services or public spaces. And one use that is for um, cross-border travel from leaving the country. Mm -hmm. And within that, and I'm finally <laughs> finished with the distinctions, we're starting to see that there is some sort of merit in distinguishing international travel proper, you know, uh, Switzerland to Australia, for example, and travel in those close political and economic unity as entities, as could be the European Union or the UK travel common area, which includes, you know, Scotland, England, the Channel Islands, Northern Ireland, etc., or the New Zealand and Australia. So there's a logic that says that's actually a further use because there are different 
arrangements between these countries and the healthcare system can somehow um, cope with that level of travel. So within that, you could say, okay, now that we've sorted the uses, how far are we from being mature? And the big sort of fracture, the big, if you want, stumbling block is that the World Health Organization is actually giving indication um, that are not favorable to uh, requiring COVID passports for international travel. And this is important because this is a, it's, it's quite a, um, a strong position that the WHO has mm -hmm. taken saying, if we look at our fight, our global fight against this virus, we have other priorities than international travel for leisure purpose, you know, essential travel, I understand. But the director general says, no, we need to prioritize vaccination all over the globe for healthcare workers and priority vulnerable populations. We should not be looking, we should not be thinking of vaccinating for travel, for leisure, for lifting restrictions. So that's a, a standoff, if you want, between WHO and mm -hmm. national and regional policy decisions to quote unquote, save summer, uh, create travel bubbles between countries that are, if you want, um, over the hill in terms of mm -hmm. immunity. I think so that's, that's where we are. Okay. And I think it's interesting, if it is rolled out, how temporary or permanent do you see it? Well, this is um, because there is a good difference among countries uh, in, in, in what they're trying to roll out, and we don't have a common standard yet, um, there isn't a single answer. I can tell you that the European Union has made it quite clear that their uh, COVID um, status certificate, which are called digital green certificates, will be um, automatic, have a sunset clause. They will be automatically, um, if you want, in, invalid the moment the pandemic is declared over. And that is a declaration that the WHO makes. So for example, the, United, the, the European Union is quite clear that there is uh, an end in sight for these certificates. Mm -hmm. But we may not know when, you know, how long that is. And by default, they have a one year. All right. Okay, and, and just to, to finish off that question, okay, you talked about um, the World Health Organization, and basically saying we should prioritize um, or concentrate on having vaccine for all before we talk about the vaccine passports. But briefly, do you, if, the pass, if the passports are rolled out, could it potentially morph into something else in, in certain areas of the world, do you think? Absolutely. There is a genuine sector, a genuine risk of public sector misuse and also of the private sector misuse unless there is a clear purpose specification meaning you can only use it for one purpose and one purpose alone and never repurpose the mm -hmm. certificate or the data that you collect in order to mm -hmm. uh, set up the certificate scheme um, unless you have that very clear prohibition for further use uh, there is 
no guarantees that it won't be abused. So this is uh, a real concern that okay, the uh, privacy activists, yes, absolutely. Yeah, this quite leads me, leads me nicely on to the political ramifications of the vaccine passport. Um, I'm gonna ask a, a, a set of questions in relation to that topic. So to start, what are the conversations in this space? Is there a balance in the conversations between the logical need for the passports and the concerns on civil liberties, for instance? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, you've, you've hit the nail on the head on this. Um, I would like to take you on a little bit of a, um, a broader, conversation on this, if you allow me, because there is an issue of um, civil liberties, or if you want to call them uh, human rights, at play here. And there also is an issue that's testing the limits, the outer limits of our ethical and legal concepts. What I'm trying to say is that not only the vaccine passport challenges are um, sense of fairness, but also tells us that our sense of fairness is not, if you want, big enough or generous enough. Um, what I'm trying to say is that we need to think both at the level of the individual, but also at the level of the global community. The global, it's a, it's a humankind level threat. So, the difficulty lies that we're trying to solve a global problem, but that our tools, our ethical tools, are around the individual. So we have a little bit of an impasse here. So let me let me um, go back. Ethical challenges leveled at the issue for individuals are that not everyone wants a vaccine. There is. Uh, you know, self-determination, that everybody uh, wants one or has access to one. So the move, for example, from talking about vaccination passports to COVID passports is testament to the fact that that challenge has been taken on board and now we don't force people to be vaccinated. They can travel and they have restrictions lifted on the basis of their health status, also in cases where they haven't been vaccinated. Um, generational discrimination issues are still there, however, um, almost universally we have prioritized um, the elderly and the younger age group is the last to be vaccinated. So restrictions are lifted later for the younger generation that leads to obviously a discrimination in that respect mm -hmm. um of course the point is that we are not very good at thinking how should i worry about communities that are not my community but are still part of this problem so how should i worry about countries that have not received the same amount of vaccines that my country has, and what can I do to, to, to help there? The, the, the real difficulty is framing the whole debate on vaccine equity with the whole debate of human rights. 
and the debate on human rights has been about, I don't want to be forced to be vaccinated or I don't want to be discriminated on the basis of my health status, where the other corner of the world has problems breathing. And that's where our ethical sort of um, shared ethical thinking really does break down. And in many ways, the, the, the human rights debate around um, COVID passports has taken the whole oxygen out of um, the conversation. And we haven't had time to formulate clearly a vaccine equity ethical theory. I hope that addresses your question. Yes, I think it does. And, and I think you touched upon other areas slightly outside of the question, which we're going to talk about later on in the discussion. So yeah, that's good. Um, let's continue. Um, like many things, COVID has uh, given birth to various movements, dialogues and terminologies. One in particular is the term vaccine nationalism. I have started to see this with great frequency in articles and various papers. I suppose we need to understand vaccine nationalism first, but with the birth of vaccine nationalism, how do you think this will morph with the advent of vaccine passports? Um, I, I look at it the other way around in fairness. I think the, it is the, um, case of which came first? Yes, I, I think it's 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 vaccine nationalism uh, that has generated the whole uh, push and drive towards um, vaccine passport or COVID passports. It is the idea that we're okay if we vaccinate our people first. We're okay if we vaccinate our patch, our corner of the world, and then we can be okay, we can resume, you know, save our economy, lift the restrictions and resume life as it was before the pandemic. It's this idea that you can do something in one corner of the world independently of, without, without concerning yourself to what's happening in the other part of the world, which means, therefore, that uh, the country secures enough vaccine doses to vaccinate all of its population. It's that kind of thinking that led to, um, let's vaccinate everybody and let's prove that we've done that and let's agree with other countries that we can have an exchange and a travel bubble and we can finally go on holiday. So it's the other way around, short answer. <laughs> Okay, okay, you think it's the other way around. Um, okay, let's get into some detail about the passport itself. Um, I, I, I don't know the details, but I'm hoping that you can um, enlighten us to it. Will, will the, and I put in quotes, algorithm, put weight on what vaccine has been obtained from where? And if so, surely this will create tension between countries, companies, and perhaps create a, a tier vaccination passport system. Um, what say you, Kiara? Okay, well, the, the, the answer takes me to who is promoting the standards. And it, at present, I think we have um, two main sort of contenders, the uh, European Union that's pushing ahead with the digital green certificates, 
and the European Union has made it quite clear that uh, firstly, they won't be compulsory. Secondly, as mentioned, it will be this three-part certificate. You can you know, have recovered, et cetera, or you could have a recent negative test. Mm -hmm. But they will be, they are mandating, the European Union is mandating recognition of all the vaccines recognized by the European Medicines Agency. Now, what's interesting here is that um, the, European, the reference is to the EMA, not to the WHO recognized vaccines. So the absolute minimum um, that all member states in Europe must recognize are the vaccines approved by the European Medicine Agency. Now, there are free, countries are free to approve vaccines from um, outside of the European Medicine Agency scheme. And that's where differences could lie. And that's where you open space for, if you want, vaccine geopolitics or mm -hmm. um, differences in what kind of vaccine you accept and what kind you don't. So at present, it would look like the European Union is um, making a smaller, a more limited number of vaccines, uh, the, the ones that uh, are okay for travel uh, into Europe and inside Europe. Um, so we'll need to see how that plays out. As I said, there is, a, there is a rift and it cannot be underplayed between the European Union and the WHO. In, uh, and I think it's, it's one of those, it's wait and see actually, because we're, we're still in the midst of it. It hasn't already been fully decided. So it's, uh, it's a very difficult question to answer and we can, we can speculate. Um, it's a straight question, but you have touched upon it before, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sort of how potentially can this, the vaccine passport, be misused by governments and controlling bodies when this open doors for a power grab, e.g. you know, the health institutions or corporations allowing only certain workers or groups of people access to facilities, for instance? Absolutely. The until and unless you have a mandatory limit on the purpose until and unless you say, let's focus on the purpose first, and then let's look at the uh, technical infrastructure, if you want, of the passports. Let's agree on what the purpose is before we allow the scheme to go ahead. Unless you have that, mm. the uh, potential misuse is there. So one of the big battles of the privacy um, sort of conversation is, purpose limitation uh, or purpose by design. Tell us from the start what this passport um, will serve and we're still not there. We still haven't had a clear cut commission, I mean, commitment from, for example, the European Commission that the proposal will not um, morph, as you say, into anything beyond medical purposes. Okay. So the state of play now in Europe is that we have the, um, the parliamentary debate on the 20th of this month, mm -hmm. and we'll see what happens. There is a genuine um, conflict there between the parliament on the one hand, European parliament, that was very, very strict use cases for this, and the commission who hasn't actually put as strict a use case to it as we would like. Right. Um Let's now look at the social ramifications in this space. Um, sensitive health data is obtained, we talked about that, and required for the vaccination passport itself. In Europe, with the GDPR compliance requirements, is there a conflict of 
interest? Is, is, is the risk of third party use of this data? And could we see the potential commercialization of the data in Europe and other parts of the world? Actually, is this happening already? The, um, I, I, I can honestly hope I can answer is not happening yet. I can honestly hope that's still the correct answer. Um, but I can tell you that the, 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 if you want the privacy watchdog, the, both the European Data Protection Supervisor, that is an independent advisor to the European Commission and the European institutions, and the European Data Protection Board, which is the, the collective um, institution where all the 27 uh, member states, European member states, uh, send their uh, data protection supervisory authorities, these institutions that represent European privacy have published a joint opinion and they, ha they have highlighted these risks. So these are out there, the published, were known. Firstly, um, there needs to be a, a necessity and proportionality of this measure. Like everything else, do we know that they are um, not that there aren't any measures out there that are equally effective to achieve our purpose, which is stop transmission, stop the transmission of the virus and enable some sort of um, uh, return to normal. Have you uh, done a data protection impact assessment? Does this scheme uh, impact some groups more than others or does it limit freedoms that it shouldn't limit? Uh, we talked about purpose limitation and absolute no repurposing of the data. So that is a very strong um, position that's been taken by these advisory bodies. Non-discrimination and absolute time and storage limitation. Do not use this past the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So uh, the advice has been given, <laughs> Elaine, and now it's a time to see whether member states, you know, politicians within each countries will heed that advice. All right. Um, is this time, I, I will expand on that, but I'm, I'm going to move to the next question because I have uh, something in mind on that, and I'll expand on that if there's time, but let me move to the next question and make sure we get all the questions we need to get out. out. Now, this question has bothered me a little, and um, hopefully you, you can shed some light onto this. And how does new variants of the virus play into this? Um, surely this will negate the vaccination passport. If that is the case, we will be going around in circles for a number of years to come, surely. Um, you hit the nail on the head with us. Um, there is, variants are not the only unknown about um, this, this whole thing. I've counted at least six unknowns. So let's, let's call them the immunological and epidemiological challenges. We mm -hmm. all agree that the ultimate goal here is to stop the virus from um, transmitting and therefore, you know, reproducing so that variants can emerge. Mm -hmm. Because every time a virus reproduces, of course, a variant can emerge. So what we don't know exactly yet that's one other variant, uh, one other element of uncertainty is how long a protection will last for each vaccine type. We don't have that certainty yet. A second unknown is that 
while some approved vaccines are effective against some mutations or some variants, we don't know exactly uh, what their effectiveness is on all known variants. So we know something about some variants, but not about the others. Um, of course, it's, it's trivial. We cannot foresee how many future mutation of this virus we're going to get, and therefore how many this, this different vaccination will protect us from. Um, and even if we know that um, certain vaccine offer protection against specific mutations, we don't know if that individual vaccination prevents them from transmitting the virus. Mm. Exactly. Protect the individual from a worsening of the health condition, you know, from lethal uh, consequences of contracting the virus, but we don't necessarily know that it also prevents them from transmitting. We don't have that certainty. And that's a fourth unknown. Um, and then we don't know how long, you know, even if we know that the vaccine will not allow an individual to fall um, mortally, <laughs> uh, mortally ill, but and, and even if we know that transmission is reduced, we don't know how long that uh, transmission block works for. And then we don't know how different age groups respond to vaccines, both on the protection count and on the transmissibility count. So all in all, Elaine, I've counted very, um, very solid <laughs> reasons mm. to not um, be too comfortable about um, vaccination as the sole solution to the pandemic. And if I may allow, you know, if I may draw a conclusion is, why are you in favor? I, I could hear you ask of vaccine passports or COVID passports, if we have all these unknowns. And the answer is that hopefully at some point there will become unknowns. Hopefully at some point science will tell us, no, actually we have certainty on all these counts. Mm -hmm. By that time, you will have to have the infrastructure ready uh, because it takes time to set up these uh, infrastructures. So I'm in favor of being ready now with COVID-19 status passports, but I'm against using them for travel yet. So I'm in favor of countries setting up the process, but I'm with the WHO. And at the moment, I think the answer is don't use them. We're not ready for travel. I mean, we really have a duty towards our fellow human being of preventing even the slightest risk of transmission and um, vaccination unknowns are such that international travel doesn't really guarantee that. So, so, so what you're saying is that you appreciate, you understand, you even agree with the logic of having a vaccination passport, but there are so many things that need to be put in place prior to that. One of the main things is what you talked about earlier, which is um, the, the World Health Organization, ensuring that vaccination is done across the board prior to any of that. That's what, that's what I'm getting from you. Yes, Am I right? absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You're correct. And, okay. and bear in mind that we may not even get to the point where all the six unknowns are resolved. Um, and we never, never even get to the point where we're in absolute certainty that it has been vanquished in certain parts of the world. You know, it might become endemic, and that means that we'll always have an element of risk. And that is an entirely different order of thinking. Okay. And 
a, a couple of questions in my head, but I, I want to get through to this and then I'll probably come back to them. Uh, an important question and probably one of the most important questions to ask in this space, and you've, you've touched upon it. So who has looked and are looking at the practicalities of the implementation of the vaccine passports like now? For example, it is said that airports will add up to 15 times the waiting time to get through customs as a result. If, if this is used um, sort of internationally. Another point is what if individuals do not possess a smartphone in order to carry the, 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 the code to, to show that, that they've got the, the vaccination or that they pass, so to speak. And three, will a tiered system or a segregation process come into play? Because if the vaccination isn't compulsory, there will be people that will not go for it. And then will, will we have some form of segregation? And finally, and, and importantly, how will you reboot the economy and having having restrictions on the young, which you talked about and you mentioned, because they will not receive the vaccination, how will all of that come into play? What, what, what are your thoughts on this, Kiara? Okay, uh, firstly, who's working on this? Mm, I think we can group them in three buckets. We have, on the one hand, national states or political institutions, then you have industry bodies, and you mentioned one, the um, Airline Industry Association, and then we have the private sector. So let's start with um, nation states and other political institutions. Certainly, we know about the EU initiative for digital print certificates. We know that the United Kingdom is redeploying the, their national health uh, system booking app. The NHS booking app will be adapted to serve as COVID status uh, certificate. We know that Estonia and Poland, for example, are looking at QR codes. Um, Denmark has given access to their um, citizens' e-health web websites. We know about Israel has a green card that is specific to vaccination status only. And then we know that the WHO is working on technical standards for a smart vaccination certificate. Now, um, I can answer your other question is what happens if you don't have a mobile mm. phone? Well, for example, the, both the EU and the UK have been very, very clear and the WHO as well have been very clear that um, not only these certificates will, will have to be free, uh, but they will uh, be offered in paper form as well. So we have that guarantee there. So, um, it shouldn't be that not having a mobile phone should not be a reason for discrimination. Um, let me let me tell you about the other industry bodies. For example, the airline industry, the IATA, has a travel pass initiative. The Economic World Forum is working on a so-called common pass. The Linux Foundation is, called, is working on the COVID-19 credentials initiative. And then, of course, the private sector is... Um, moving big time into the space. IBM is working on the digital health pass and Microsoft is working on the smart health cards. Mm -hmm. So of course, from a private sector, you expect digital first and industry bodies are trying to harmonize regulations coming from all corners of the world. I think that is the trend. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the discrimination that you mentioned remains for those, um, COVID uh, passports conceived around vaccination only. So for example, uh, I don't think I'm mistaken in saying that Israel's green card only um, 
sort of ascertains or is evidence of vaccination only. It doesn't tell you whether you have so-called natural immunity because you've had COVID before or, or whether you've had a recent test that was negative. So the EU and the UK on, on, on that regard are slightly less discriminatory. They give the possibility to people who, are, who, who don't want or cannot have a vaccine to have a COVID pass. So, you know, that, that can be resolved if you make your certificate a little bit more uh, articulated, but the generational gap isn't resolved by any of them. Mm -hmm. Well, probably um, you'd have to provide free testing to, um, to anybody that wants to travel. Uh, and that's one way of eliminating that element of the um, discrimination. But it would have to be up to, for example, each nation state, each member state of the European Union to um, provide free testing. And that's not the case yet. Some testing is rather expensive. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, that would have been the final question, but there was just this niggling thought in my head and I need to sort of articulate it. It's if the passports, the vaccine passports were not compulsory in various countries, if they're not compulsory, Correct. won't that make them null and void? Because how can you, I hate the word, but the only thing I can think of is police. How can you police and ensure that this is adhered to unless everybody is a, adhering to the, the passport requirements? It's just like travel. You cannot travel anywhere without a passport. So, but with a vaccination passport, it's not compulsory. If you don't have it, then therefore it, it becomes null and void, yeah. doesn't it? Well, Elaine, that's a very, very good question. Um, I'm actually going to split it into two. Part of your question is about effectiveness of COVID uh, status certificate. And part of the question I understand is it's about proportionality. So the first part of your question, as I understand it, uh, goes, some, goes something like this. If, if an attestation of your COVID status is not mandatory and, and you cannot be asked to prove your health um, status when it might be beneficial for others to, to know that. Um, how are we going to relate to each other? Should we always presume that the other is a source of contagion? Well, if that's the case, uh, I hear you say, what's this, what, why go to the border of setting up a certification scheme? What is the point of holding a COVID status certification if we must all continue to adopt the same behavior we had at the start of the pandemic? Well, one way to answer this question is to go back to those distinctions we made um, initially. Remember, I uh, said that there's different use cases for, um, for passports and they're not all the same. So, for example, think of international travel, international leisure travel, not necessary travel. So, if the use case for the passport is international pleasure, uh, traveling, uh, then a nation, you know, does have in law the prerogative to take measures to ascertain the health status of incoming travelers when there's a need to protect a community from contagions brought in from the outside, or vice versa, when the community transmission of a disease is already high in the destination country, the incoming traveler must prove they have immunity, so must prove they're not likely to fall ill and not add to the burden of a local health system that might not be able to cope with that. 
So no, in, in this case, for example, in international leisure travel, it makes perfect sense to make a COVID certification a speedy measure for entering a country. You have alternatives and alternatives are um, testing upon arrival and quarantine. It is not mandatory, but it's expedient. But think of another use case. Um, I'm thinking about essential services provided by a country, you know, domestic movement, access to services like public transport or state school. Now, this raises a different question. Um, one, that issuing, sorry, requesting a COVID status certificate to access an essential services make that passport de facto mandatory. Um, because, for example, accessing the underground, closed space, no ability to maintain physical distance, um, no alternative of testing and quarantine is really practical. So traveling on the tube, for example, uh, in my mind, does justify making uh, COVID status certificate mandatory, mandatory for that purpose. Of course, you can always use private transport and avoid public transport, but do you really always have a choice? Um, could you not send your children to um, school? So that's a different use case. And I'm inclined to think that if we're talking about accessing essential services, especially those paid by taxes, you know, by the public purse, when alternatives are not an option or require even more, you know, require even more discriminatory measures such as classes for pupils that are vaccinated and classes for pupils that are unvaccinated or tube carriages for vaccinated and tube carriages for unvaccinated you know um, when alternative is not an option and you have even more risk of virus transmission uh, then i think yes i think that's that's uh, making it a prerequisite is 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 important but point conceded it then no longer is really truly um, optional it is mandatory in practice it is mandatory then for example you have another use case and we have to distinguish non-essential discretionary services provided at private operators like a hair salon or a restaurant uh, so there's some consensus around the fact that private operators can make certification of covid status prerequisite for accessing non-essential privately owned and run services you're certainly free not to engage the services, but proportionality is more to the point. You know, could the service provider arrange tables in a manner that the same uh, restaurant service can be provided by maintaining physical distancing? Is making COVID passport a prerequisite just a way for that private operator of saving themselves the expenditure and trouble of making alternative arrangements? And that's proportionality comes into play. But I, I'd, I'd really like to go back to the point that when we talk you know when we talk of civil liberties and human rights um in this passport debate we we're always thinking about individuals but in a pandemic the real challenge is that we have to think not only individual level but at global community at global human species level and connecting the two orders of thinking it's hard it's very, very hard to see how the action of one individual impacts on the whole of a human species. You know, how does my traveling uh, impact the whole of community? But in this pandemic, it did and it still does. So bottom line, um, 
you know, the strength of the whole ethical and legal debate about COVID-19 passports has been to point out discriminatory treatment between individuals on the basis of health status. And, you know, we were looking at lifting restrictions for some but not for others. And that has been a healthy debate. But the, the weakness of this ethical and legal debate uh, about passports to date has been an exclusive focus on the rights and freedoms of the individual rather than humanity as a whole. There you go, there's an ambulance. We're still not over it, are we? So uh, let's, uh, let's disengage uh, from thinking about individuals. Um, that these, this passport debate has been an atrocious distraction. We're trying to solve a community transmission problem with the tools that focuses on individuals. We should instead start thinking as about assessing how much risk each one of us individually poses to others, to the community. In a pandemic, we should really move from individual first thinking and switch over to community first thinking. And unfortunately, we're just terrible at doing that. Fascinating discussion today. Chiara um, Rustici, many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you, Elaine. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.